welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Thomas K. Chu, a New York attorney. We will discuss his work on estate planning and legal issues affecting older clients. So welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. Um, you know, we've known each other for quite some time now. I think you may have been in one of the first classes I taught as as a law professor. Am I right? I think so. I think so. And uh, it was one of my favorite classes. I'm sure many professors are, you know, can I get <laughs> flattered by having, you know, the, the feedback, but, but I considered your class and not-for-profit organizations really one of my, one of my favorites and, and one that uh, as a you know, second career person going to law school, I really threw myself into the readings and following the work and, and really appreciated your you know, helping the class and, and me personally, you know, get the insights we needed in a very short amount of time with a lot of reading. Uh, lots of different kind of cases, and uh, it's it's amazing how uh, I've taken that and carried that with me, uh, having had twenty years in in life in not for profit organizations. Then you know, having really a legal uh, point of view in terms of understanding tax law, the, the cases uh, that that we we looked at together, but also you know, applying the the, the learning to to our own lives and, and thinking through how we would see our careers unfold uh, in those years since then. So, uh, so it's been great to stay in touch and thank you for, for, uh, bringing me on, onto your show. Great. My pleasure. So, so Tom, maybe you could start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and about your practice and in particular, sort of how you became interested in estate planning and issues affecting older clients. I, uh, was, for almost 20 years before going to law school uh, in religious not-for-profit work, I worked in, for the Episcopal Church at, at the church-wide national, international level. And when I uh, left my last position, I was the director of ministries with young people, uh, children, youth, and young adults, and faith formation, a very kind of sp- specific and narrow uh, position, but also with a lot of responsibility with, for 7,000-plus congregations around the U.S. and around the world. and. Uh, from there, I, I uh, had the chance to start all over and and uh, chose Hofstra uh, for for law school. And uh, the trigger for me in my own life was that uh, my mother uh, took her own life in 2007, just just before I I made this decision. And I had the experience of being a client of an estate planner uh, and being trustee executor on the kind of consumer side of this this work and thinking through the entire process, how the person who was serving as attorney had the correct uh, academic background, was just fine as far as a professional practitioner, but had absolutely horrible, uh, I'm putting air quotes, uh, bedside manner, really not a nice person and uh, not someone who really had a lot of empathy for, for me, the client. And so through that whole process, I was thinking, you know what, I can go to law school and I can learn how the rules work and regulations. And uh, I can just start out by being nicer than you. And, uh, and that was really that my guiding kind of uh, thought in terms of uh, how I would take to law school. So I was very different from uh, other students who were much younger. I was, I was 40 when I started. 
so I was much clearer about my personal goals when I went to Hofstra. And it uh, turns out that it's a, it's a place that, that is a leader in, in uh, trust and estates uh, study and um, is the home of the uh, ACTEC Law Journal, which is the American College of Trust and Estates Council. So I was fortunate to be around some of the, 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 the most highly regarded minds uh, and teachers in, in the field. And in a in a relatively you know small uh, law school environment, and in a very narrow field of of estate planning, which is not necessarily the most popular choice. So so I got lots and lots of attention from wonderful and encouraging professors, and uh, was able to kind of map out my own journey through that process. And in fact, um, in exploring my um, academic interests, I I found. Uh, that there really was no work in elder law, which is a specific related um, uh, field, which focuses on the needs of, of, of um, elder clients and um, uh, what's called Medicaid planning, uh, asset protection planning. And it's a very specific practice uh, that is done differently in each state because of the way the Medicaid program works to help middle class um, patients, clients qualify for Medicaid through a process of self-impoverishment, which is a very kind of specific very specific practice, um, and which is something that it's called elder law, and it does include some of the um, areas that I'll be sharing with uh, with you in, in this uh, podcast. But um, but I actually, to find out more about this, decided to to be the founding officer of the Hofstra Elder Law Society. And at the time, it, it turned out that the a, a former dean of Hofstra was really the, the founding thinker in this field, which only goes back to the 1980s. So it's actually a relatively new area of legal practice and and legal thought, and it's specifically applying the law um, around people uh, in their older years, and that's specifically uh, Medicare and Medicaid, as well as uh, disability law, and then uh, also thinking about end-of-life or or healthcare planning. So, So I've decided to focus in my practice uh, not so much on that specific Medicaid asset protection planning, but um, so that's that's what when people think of the word term elder law, it's what they're thinking about. But I did actually spend quite a bit of time doing that discernment in law school. And so Hofstra was a great experience, a uh, place to try things on, meet practitioners, really to to find out more about how that would be. Uh, come out in practice. So I had some really wonderful professors guiding me, but also practical experiences in my summers uh, between between semesters to really work in offices to find out more. And um, so coming out of uh, law school, what, once I got admitted to the bar in New York, I was ready to to launch a, a solo practice. I went straight to solo from law school, which is pretty pretty unusual, I think, for for most people. I did have the the backing of my family um, to 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 make that take that gamble and, and and spent my own resources to which I'd saved up to to go to law school. So I was privileged in certain ways to to choose my own uh, path in that way. But uh, but I used the four years in a part time program to discern a path forward, uh, as a, as an estate planner. And, uh, so since 2013, so going on now six years, uh, next month, I will have, uh, had, uh, quite a few, uh, clients, uh, to work with, uh, you know, to tuck under my belt. And, and it's, uh, it's been a, a real joy for me. It's a, it's a very special, uh, area of practice in that 
uh, even after the engagement ends with a client, my work continues really through, you know, whatever ups, ups or downs happen in that household, but also beyond death, in fact, uh, helping to do probate administration, uh, working with survivors, executors. So it's a commitment that I make to a, to a client in their household for really, uh, you know, even past a generation for for their lifetime and then and then into the future. So it's been uh, it's 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 been a, a choice that that uh, that is a very specific practice of law. That's that's very personal. Uh, it crosses from legal into financial, which uh, planning, which which I do a lot of, and uh, and it's and it, it's really covering uh, a number of topics that 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 people hold very closely to their uh, to their chest. So it's. Uh, it, it takes uh, gaining confidence that uh, that I'm able to to bring from my other work uh, to uh, to to help people find out, get clear about what they want, and then for me to help cement their wishes in in writing and help them understand how the law can can serve their needs. So, Tom, in in your experience, what are like some of the most common misconceptions that people have about? estate planning and the estate planning process, or maybe like the most common mistakes that people make when planning their estates? Sure. I, my, the first thing that, 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 that I'll hear from people is something like, well, Tom, I don't, I don't really have much or of anything to, to, to really have a plan for. Um, and, and my response to a person who says that is that anybody who has anything in their life, you know, whether even if someone says, well, I'm alone in the world, I'm single, you know, even even if somebody lives very simply in their, you know, imagination, in their estimation, will have obligations, financial obligations to wrap up if they and when, frankly, they die suddenly, right? We don't know when, for most people, we don't know when that's going to happen. But uh, even somebody who, say, rents an accommodation and only has debts, uh, to to pay still has an estate and still has uh, to have somebody somebody needs to step in to to stand in the shoes of that person when they die. Um, so that's that's probably the biggest misconception is that people many people think they don't have that much to be worried about. But even somebody who conceivably you know thinks that they don't they may have a negative equity may still have obligations. Uh, you know a last rent bill to pay. Somebody needs to clean out an apartment. Um, Certainly, when when a you know a, a potential client has children, they they have a lot at stake, because um, if there's a sudden disability or death of a of one or of, of both parents, uh, then a child is without custody, and then the state will step in, and uh, and choose a guardian on their behalf. So so there, that's probably the biggest misconception is that people think they don't have enough to worry about, but I think everybody has something that they should be worried about. I even, you know, help parents of uh, older teenagers think through what it means for someone to turn 18 under the law. When, when, a, when a child reaches the age of majority, parents no longer actually have control over uh, the child's health care decision making, uh, the child's personal finances. So, so I will do uh, health care proxies or in some states they're known as medical powers of attorney or um, uh, uh, financial powers of attorney, I will do those documents for uh, young people returning 18, even even if they're living in the same household, because because uh, if they suddenly become disabled, the parents don't necess- don't automatically have legal rights uh, to to make determinations. For instance, even if the child is under their insurance plan, it doesn't necessarily give the parents legal access to the child's 
adult child's uh, healthcare information, for instance. So that's another another misconception that people might think, well, I'm too young to have an estate plan. Uh, so once somebody reaches the age of majority, a lot of these decisions should be made. Maybe an 18-year-old doesn't need a will if they don't have any assets, but, uh, but a parent should have at least a will for a guardianship to be designated by will if, in case of a sudden death. Now, if there are two parents, the surviving parent would have already, you know, guardianship privileges that, that come from their biological parentage. But, but in some cases, there are, you know, there's more exposure because there's only one parent involved or one parent with custody involved. So that's another another uh, kind of misconception that people might have to think that oh well I don't have that much uh, to 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 worry about. Um, but the the other big misconception that people have is the idea that an estate plan is only for after I die. And uh, as it turns out, uh, the Social Security Administration uh, predicts that a twenty year old today. Uh, who has then 47 years till 67, uh, till their retirement age, they have a one in four chance, 25% chance of having a disability that will take them out of work for 90 days or longer. Uh, and that period of disability is 90 days or longer is long enough for someone who doesn't have an estate plan for disability to miss a payment on a loan or miss a rent payment or you know go into arrears on on other debts that can leave them seriously not only disabled but also out of a home right so uh so the if there's a one in four statistical chance that that's what the federal government is using for their measure of the likelihood of disability this is a wake-up call for all of us to to plan for that possibility it's you know, and in this case, one in four is a probability of one. You know that that so it's something that we just don't know when it's going to happen. And uh, if we don't have a um, power of attorney for for uh, for money and finance, or a healthcare proxy or a medical power of attorney for uh, when we can't speak the words that we wish to a healthcare provider, uh, we could really wind up being in a, uh, in a, in a, in a, a really a deep trouble because there is uh, then really what, what I call the null plan, right? Uh, of what actually not making a plan has consequences and the law will fill in the gaps. So in all states, there's a law of intestacy of what happens when one dies without without a will, uh, and then also uh, there are laws around disability and what happens guardianship or some states they call it conservatorship. What happens? Uh, how does the state fill in the blank when there is no person appointed in advance to take care of medical needs or health uh, uh, or uh, economic needs? Mm. Well, so so when people are planning their estate. What kind of options or choices that they have? I mean, I, I mean, I'm familiar with like the idea of obviously like drafting a will and so on. Is, is there just like one kind of will, or are there other ways of approaching estate planning? Right. Um, so, f- at the very minimum, I think everybody should have a will because that would that that would allowed the, the the testator, the, the the principal, to appoint someone in advance who will stand in their shoes to take care of business. And uh, all kinds of things can happen that people may not even anticipate, right? If there is a cause of death uh, is because of a tort 
a, a hurt, an accident, or the cause, you know, uh, caused by someone else, there could be recovery by the estate where you want the executor to be able to hire a lawyer, go after someone who committed the, you know, misfeasance, malfeasance uh, mistake and make a recovery. It could be a medical malpractice. It could be a car accident. There are all kinds of causes of death that actually could trigger actually more money coming into the estate. Or there could be a, a lawsuit that uh, that happens uh, during lifetime but doesn't pay out until afterwards. Could be an insurance payout, could be a tax payout. So, or even money left in form of bequest to the to now the person who's a decedent. The person dies. Somebody can stand in the shoes. So that would be a typical way of, of managing that. And certainly, you know, everybody should have that. Some people choose to have a trust set up, which would be an optional um, uh, possibility, which allows uh, a client to really kind of create what I call their own law, their personal set of rules of how their assets can be uh, managed both during their lifetime in case of disability, but also after death. And then they can really kind of, you know, rule from from the grave or from beyond uh, and, and set up uh, provisions that can last uh, beyond their immediate kind of distribution after death that would a normal uh, kind of a, a, a will might might have. And there are trusts that actually live inside of wills. They're called testamentary trusts. And that may be useful for, I do that for families with young children where the likelihood of both parents dying is, is kind of remote. But um, for some people who may already have a disabled beneficiary or there's a possibility they have enough beneficiaries out there that one of them may become disabled in future, that it, it can be very, very useful to set up a trust because then they can do things to supplement but not supplant benefits they may be flowing to the disabled person. And so anybody who's on Medicaid or Social Security disability or other government benefits uh, might find themselves, if the money is coming to them in form of cash through a will, may find that they've become disqualified by their assets getting too uh, inflated to qualify for those benefits, uh, which for people with disabilities can be really uh, spoil their situation. They might it might mean the end of their housing benefit or important medical benefits that they rely on. So so uh, trusts can really help benefit a whole range of of wishes especially for disabled persons or beneficiaries, but definitely for clients who want more control, um, say if they want to benefit other generations uh, of descendants uh, or charities and so on, they can have lots more control through a trust. And, uh, and basically within the law, I can help people craft a, an approach or a solution for problems they might see cropping up once they're no longer there to make decisions. So it can kind of stand in their place to uh, be the arbiter of certain kinds of economic decisions, um, not so much healthcare. You know, uh, this is really about, about how assets are distributed. But uh, many people think, oh, Tom, I don't have enough to really worry about that. And when I actually help them think through their situation, it's amazing how complex uh, households can get when there's um, blended families, for instance, when there are two, a second marriage uh, and two sets of children, for instance. Um, uh, there may be, we wish to, to care for children from different marriages and care for them differently with different assets because they may be flowing from different uh, sources. Um, the, there's, I've, I learned so much from my clients because they come to me with their issues and really what I think of what issues forth from their lives, right? And I'm able to to help them understand how the, the law can serve them. But those are some examples of how 
people might think of a trust versus having just a will uh, to uh, to achieve their goals. But I'm I'm not one who's interested in just selling people an, another piece of paper uh, just to, to to do the work. It's really more about helping them understand how the law can can serve them. And then for people with lots more assets, if they're worried about estate tax, uh, there are ways to to to, to deal with that. Uh, possibility right now the um, the federal ex- uh, exclusion amount is is well over eleven million dollars. Uh, so the 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 wor- the number of households that were they're going to have to pay uh, an estate tax right now is quite small. So that's really not the core of, of my practice at this point. But in New York State, um, uh, estates of over five five and five, about around five and a half million uh, are subject to to some tax and so uh, I can help people plan for that and, and trust can help help uh, with that by by moving assets around uh, using using the tax law and the laws that are that are available today uh, but um, there the trust can be very very useful to, to help give shape to plans that are extending you know well into the future but uh, a trust can also uh, help people make charitable uh, intents, uh, maximize their charitable intent by getting uh, g- some great tax benefits along the way or dividing kind of um, assets in a way that that uh, both benefit uh, human you know, beneficiaries in a lifetime uh, or maybe later and also help a uh, charity and, and get some great uh, both recognition, but also some great tax benefits. So it's so it's fun to fun to help people uh, who are uh, charitably minded kind of, uh, you know, understand how the rules work and and help them really play the game and and get kind of the best result. Mm. Well, so you, you mentioned the use of trusts in estate planning, and I understand that, among other things, trusts can help uh, can help people avoid probate. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why that might be advantageous and also whether there are any particular risks potentially associated with with using a trust in an estate planning context. It's you know it's it's useful to have um uh the probate process varies in terms of 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 the expense of probate and the time it takes and so some attorneys will you know sell the idea of use, doing a trust by you know uh, kind of contrasting kind of what it costs to do do the work later in the end when you set up a trust it's kind of i think of it as in simple terms pay now or pay later so when you when you can fund a trust in lifetime and set up the rules in advance you can avoid the probate process and probate's uh, fees are based on the size of the estate so, so for people of modest estates, it may not, you know, on balance be in terms of cost and benefit. It may be, you know, even the difference is, is that uh, there is time involved in, in, in probating a state. A state has to stay open for, for in New York State, that has to stay open for, for nine months uh, until uh, we, we're able to, uh, to distribute the, the assets to the eventual beneficiary. So, so a trust can actually work more efficiently because those assets can be distributed more quickly. Uh, and so there may be immediate needs where it's actually quite helpful to have it all under control of a trust. Uh, but, uh, you know, for some people, I'll, I will work with them and help them decide which is the best approach. The, um, but uh, I think a, a well-drafted uh, trust, in a, you know, according to the jurisdiction where people live, there, there, there aren't too many risks if it's, if it's correctly, if it's correctly uh, uh, drafted and executed. 
there are, you know, whenever people change their domicile, the law of wills and trusts is governed by uh, the states. So when a household picks up and moves some, somewhere else, uh, the plan needs to be examined under the lens of the new, new place uh, of, of uh, domicile, meaning the place where you choose to live without, you know, with no intent to, to move on to someplace else. So, so I have had clients who moved from New York to California, and I suggested an attorney over there, and they had to pay for a plan, and then they moved back to New York. And now they have to pay for a New York plan because New York and California actually have different different sets of laws. And uh, so there are uh, in the the law of wills and trusts there in terms of property, there are uh, some states uh, follow something called community property for married couples. And uh, it's very differently structured than 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 in New York, which is which is uh, a separate property state. So uh, so what happens in community property states is that that when people marry, that actually the 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 character of the asset actually uh, merges, and so uh, that's it's pretty complex for those of us who don't come from those jurisdictions uh, to navigate. And so it's important that people, whenever they move, they need to for for whatever the time they put into and paying for their plan, they need to get a, an advisor or an attorney admitted in in their new state of domicile to take a look at at what they have and make sure it works. Sometimes. Uh, what has been drafted in the prior jurisdiction may work. In general, it's not. It's it's much more helpful to make sure that everything fits together if they're intending to not leave, and that there would be a death in the other, in the other jurisdiction, because there can be unintended consequences uh, that the that the first drafter won't have known because they're. I'm only qualified to draft for my own jurisdiction in New York. So uh, that is the, so. There are some risks in terms of uh, you know whenever people put a plan together, they keep it up to date. So whenever there's a change of residence, and then obviously whenever there's a change in the household uh, composition, it could be a birth, it could be a death, it could be substantial you know bequest coming in. Any change of status in the household really merits visiting the the, the advisor again, coming back to the planner and seeing if there are things that should be attended to. So, Tom, I, I was wondering if you could also talk a little bit about end of life issues, so sort of non-financial estate planning, but planning for the for the death process. Are there things that you think are important for people to know and to think about and to contemplate in relation to end of life issues? Absolutely, I think that you know disability can hit us really at any time in life. And it may be a temporary disability. So, in terms of healthcare planning, you know, having having a uh, an advanced um, the terms are different in different jurisdictions. In New York, it's called a healthcare proxy. Uh, many states use the term uh, medical power of attorney, uh, and 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 these are documents that, that 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 clients can can draft have drafted to make their wishes known in writing, so that they appoint a person to stand in their place in case they're not able to speak their wishes. Uh, to a medical professional about how they want to live, how they want to live with medical, you know, technical, technological assistance, uh, their attitude towards life, you know, life support. Um, it's really important that they have that conversation with their agent. And uh, I do have clients who ask about living wills, which are in New York is not a living will state, but some states do um, honor documents that people have drafted in advance that that really do document their put in writing their. Uh, wishes as far as uh, attitudes towards, say, uh, massive antibiotics or uh, pain medication, pain management, a uh, number of different possibilities. But it's really impossible to plan for all the permutations 
of what can happen to a person. So uh, it's really important to have that conversation with the agent, have a backup agent, have those people be very available, have those papers filed in advance with healthcare providers. Um, but another wrinkle in all of that is that there's a federal uh, statute um, uh, about health, health information privacy, uh, HIPAA. And uh, it's a very, very important uh, law, which, by the way, many in the medical profession really overinterpret uh, and and overdefend uh, the 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 information of patients even from themselves from the patients themselves and sometimes to the people they 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 want to have act as agent so I draft a uh, an authorization to make sure that those people are authorized in advance to get information like patient charts blood work um, x-rays MRIs those very important documents that a, a an agent would need to understand before making a decision on behalf of the principal. So that's that's one piece that I think everybody really needs to attend to. But I think that the frontier of work around uh, healthcare proxies, um, medical powers of attorney, is around care in um, case of dementia. So I've been working with an organization here in New York called End of Life Choices, and. Uh, the organization has developed a really nice uh, document. Uh, it's called a Dementia Advanced Directive. And there's just a growing demand uh, uh, from patients wanting language that is not adequately addressed in the statutes, in this case in New York, around, uh, around healthcare proxy, around making wishes known, around specifically oral assisted feeding. So the issue is this, that, that there is an autonomic response that if you see babies getting kind of conditioned to be fed that actually is is actually triggered by bringing a spoonful of food to the lips and so there's this whole whole, whole kind of neurological response and then there is a um you know uh, reaching out of lips touching the vessel, swallowing, chew, masticating but it may be actually quite involuntary for people with advanced dementia so so what the directive does is it, it has very specific language to instruct the healthcare provider to be super attentive to the patient giving signs of either pleasure or displeasure, rejection of food, so that so the patient still has a little bit of control, even though with the vast dementia, people are nonverbal, to be able to signal to the to the to the healthcare aid uh, person doing the feeding that they they are not really enjoying being fed. Uh, because I, th that's the very little bit of control that a patient has left with that kind of situation. And people can live for a long time. We talk about, uh, you know, being kind of uh, very well below the brows. Uh, the heart and the, and, and the pulmonary function and the digestive function can all be, you know, going very well. And yet people can be living with advanced dementia, not even know where they are, who they are, and live for a very long time. But but it's very important that that we give uh, patients the dignity of having choice. And in this case, around food, and that's I think a frontier of work uh, that I know that we're doing here in New York, and there are other states where there's quite good work going on. Um, there's a lot of uh, work going on with uh, dignity and dying, uh, where where there is uh, in some there's some work uh, in I know Washington and Oregon states. There are uh, there's been very good work done to allow 
uh, people who live in those states to actually plan for dying with dignity with the aid of of a physician. And uh, each state has done it a different way. Um, but uh, there is a, another alternative for those of us in states where there is uh, not yet this legislation. And uh, so another another edge of the of the work that's happening that I've been following very closely because my patients do uh, my clients do bring this to me as patients of doctors asking, well, what can I what can I ask my doctor to help me with? Um, there, there was actually quite a nice article uh, that was appeared just a, a couple of days ago, early in November uh, in The Washington Post. And the, I'll just read you the title. At 94, she was ready to die by fasting and her daughter filmed it. You can Google this article on The Washington Post uh, website. Um, and it's and it's about a person uh, who at 94 uh, was ready to die, and uh, there really was no medical aid to die, but she chose to die by fasting. Was able to get hospice help to kind of give her pain relief in that process, and uh, this this uh, her daughter actually filmed it as a way of documenting what 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 actually does happen. Um, it's not an easy way to go, but for there, these are people who are making their own choices, and uh, and as a, as an attorney, my my job is to really kind of vindicate and defend the position of my clients. And in this case, these are people who are making very specific decisions about how and when they want to die. When they find out that they have a terminal illness, they're not able to to really enjoy life anymore. They've tried uh, the possibilities, and they they're asking for for help and and. Uh, and I think that that those two pieces of work around the dementia and vast directive, and uh, as fast uh, dying through fasting, uh, are really interesting areas. And there there are lots of ethical questions around this, but but there the people are already mapping out this this territory, and I see my my work my role is to really help my clients find out how the law will serve them. And you know in in, in this case you know. Uh, not, I'm not able to give them a lot of advice, but to say to, to just report to them what what other other uh, other people uh, living with terminal illness are, are actually trying out and how the law is treating it. Well, so Tom, in closing, uh, you mentioned earlier that before going to law school, you had a long career in the charitable sector and specifically in religious charities. And I was I was wondering if you could reflect on how that period of your life and, you know, your work in the charitable sector and your religious faith have informed your practice as a lawyer? That's a wonderful question. No, it, it, I, I think of it often in that, um, you know, I, I still bring my my religious spiritual conviction to to my work, but, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that my clients are coming to me with very specific personal needs. But I, I, I think of, you know, I think of my purpose in, you know, in the world, as uh, being kind of very much in a, a continuation of of what I committed my prior professional life to, which was serving an institution in, in a particular way. Now I'm really focusing it on individual clients, which is which is really helping people to get clear about their values, uh, what they really want in life, and in this case, life and and death, um, so that they can match up um, kind of their core values about what matters most to them with what they have and how they want their assets uh, to be distributed, but also how they want their values to really be extended through through uh, their decision-making, including uh, in, in, in many cases, many of my clients uh, do have charitable intentions, and I'm able to help them uh, kind of uh, act out their intentions in ways that can get them 
uh, recognition and lifetime. Sometimes they want to act anonymously, but but uh, really get them uh, a great result. Uh, and and so I, I think of um, being able to kind of live a f full humanity of um, of of doing something where I can bring some expertise to a situation and help serve people and, and um, help them kind of get clear. That's the biggest part of what I do is really help people find clarity. And, uh, and then once they have the clarity to make sure that they, that they, they get it documented and that I can kind of uh, waterproof that, you know, against challenges in the future. Um, so it's, I find that there's like a real continuity and, um, and through my mother's own experience, you know, uh, taking our life uh, and my own experience as a client that I, I really took the, those, that experience and the values that I, that I had then and really try to, you know, embody the best practice of, of, of serving as attorney uh, to help people. And so it's something that, that does inform my life, I think, you know, in a small way all the time. And um, it's certainly been a, a cornerstone of my practice even, you know, many of my clients are not necessarily religious or even spiritual, but they sense a, a compassion in me and are attracted to me for the heart that I have for the work that I do. And uh, it does it does take quite a lot of capacity for empathy to to help walk alongside clients who are facing, you know, all of these ultimacies in life about disability, about death, all these kind of big kind of capital letter things in life, which frankly, most people don't want to really think about too much, right? So by the time they get to me, they've thought enough about it to say, I want to put pen to paper, I want help, and they're quite open, and I'm able to to serve them in a way that's meaningful to them. And it's a joy that for me that, that I am able to make a living uh, uh, in that practice uh, and, and help people in the way that I can. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much, Tom. That was really a beautiful sentiment, I think, and it's been really informative for me and a delight to talk to you about your practice and these really important issues that I think people really need to be thinking about. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's wonderful to get to share with you and catch up. And, and, and now, now I have to go back to your, to your uh, list of podcasts and catch up with other, others of your guests. in Santa Barbara Tried to brace myself But you can't brace yourself When the time comes 
You just have to roll with the blast And I'm an 18-wheeler headed down the interstate And my brakes are gonna give And I won't know till it's too late Tires screaming when I lose control Try not to hurt too many people when I roll Freeway and head south, real tired, head kind of light. I found Telegraph Road, I had only seen the name on envelopes. Found the parking lot and turned right, I fell. All the details Carving out space in my head Tropicana's on the walkway Neon red Between the pain And the pills Trying to hold it at bay Stands a traveler Going somewhere far away I am an airplane tumbling wing over wing Try to listen to my instruments, they don't say anything People screaming when the engines quit I hope we're all in crash position when we hit your bedside And as it turns out I'm not ready And as though You were speaking through a thick haze You said hello to me We all stood there around you Happy to hear you speak The last of something bright burning Still burning Beyond the cancer and the chemotherapy You were a presence full of light upon this earth And I am a witness to your life and to its worth Three days later when I get the call 
There's nobody around to break my fall. 